Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. That would be Mr. Briscoe, wherever he is in these Brady Bunch squares, and I would be Bradshaw. When Major League Baseball had their inaugural class, they put Babe Ruth into the Hall of Fame. When the UFC had their inaugural class, they put the guy just like they did with Babe Ruth in baseball, who built the sport. They put Ken Shamrock in the Hall of Fame. From the robbery that he had with Hoist Gracie, to Dan Severn, to Tito Ortiz, MMA and the UFC were built off the back of this legend. And then you throw in 1998 King of the Ring, WWE Intercontinental Champion. As ABC News said, he's simply the world's most dangerous man. He's our friend. We're honored to have him on the show, Mr. Ken Shamrock. Welcome to the show, Ken. I appreciate that introduction, man. And uh, I look forward to it, man. Uh, I'm here with two uh, great individuals. It'll be this is going to be fun. I, I, I don't know if we're going to do everything right, but I, you're definitely going to be entertained. <laughs> not, not only not only is Ken UFC Hall of Fame, John, he joined you in the uh, Luthez George Traga Dan Gable National Wrestling Hall of Fame in Waterloo, Iowa this past weekend and walked away probably with the greatest applause after his induction speech of anybody except for you and me. You know, that's everything. <laughs> But he was awesome. Congratulations again, Ken. You sold the show, my friend. And, man, I was so honored to have you there, have you inducted into that great Hall of Fame. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. It was an honor. You know, Ken, it was funny. We were getting ready for watching the, the show. We've had a little technical difficulties. The thing we, the thing we <laughs> right. need to film is a bunch of old guys trying to get on Zoom. That's the interesting stuff. But I watched a bunch of your old videos, a bunch of your interviews you had done with uh, Hannibal and the Ferraro, a bunch of different guys. Uh, I got I got inspired to get on a diet and start training again. What an inspirational story. Your story is world-class. Unbelievable where you came from and the fact you succeeded every single way you, you've been. It's why you're in every Hall of Fame and been ever champion that you could possibly be. Yeah, you know, uh, it was it's it's funny how it comes full circle, right? I mean, I think that you know the great ones, the 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 ones that achieve that highest level, and and then that one percent that get into the Hall of Fame, they all have a a a uh, a, a story that continues to retell itself over and over again of why they kept being successful throughout the years, over and over again. And it has to do with this this idea in their minds of not failing, and and it comes doesn't just mean that it's the words not failing. It could be things of uh, things that happened to them in a younger life where they felt like you know they had no way out, they had to figure out a way themselves, and somebody comes along and they they help them and they help them understand uh, the, the 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 recipe to being successful. And they, the rest of their lives, they live it that way. Mine was my father who basically told me after I broke my neck, you know, you're going to lay there and pout about it or, you know, what are you going to do about it? Because no one else could do it for you. And I literally lived my life, my whole career, my whole life, because I was 17 years old with a broken neck being told I'd never play contact, contact sports again. And he said, you know, you could pout about it, but that ain't going to do anything for you but you're the only one that can change this direction that you're going. And what are you going to do about it? Cause nobody else can do it for you. They can lead you to the, to the water. They can help you climb the mountain. They can give you opportunities. They can lead you in the right directions. But when it comes right down to it, you have to do the work. And so I think that every great athlete or every, every person in business or anybody that's successful in life, 
uh, at that at that elite level all have a story that someone along the line helped them understand how to be successful. I can. I uh, this weekend I was fortunate enough to hear that speech, and I was sharing with John. But you know, you mentioned your broken neck. Uh, lead us up to that that broken neck, your your athletic career, and how, how you got to the point where you're you're wrestling, and then all of a sudden. You know, you you you've reached a, uh, uh, one of your goals, and that's to make the state tournament. And then, boom, it's all taken away from you. And that that uh, just this leads us up to where you were going with with that story there. Yeah, you know, um, as a kid, uh, I was in and out of juvenile hall. Uh, I didn't have parents per se. I uh, didn't know who my father was until I was forty two years old, and I had already been adopted by Bob Shamrock at eighteen years old. But back when I was a kid, I didn't have a home and I was literally in and out of juvenile hall in several different group homes. I was constantly failing everywhere. Um, And uh, I ended up at the Shamrock Boys Home uh, as my last chance. I had gotten stabbed. Uh, I had done some strong arm robbery. Uh, I had a I had a, a record that was it was really thick. And I was at the time I was 13 years old when I went to the Shamrock Boys Home. I wasn't even in high school yet. And I had already been in and out of the system, uh, you know, seven, eight times uh, at the age 10 years old till I was 13. I never went to school because I was always in juvenile hall or I was in and out of placements at different group homes or boys camps uh, and constantly on the move. So I never had an education. So when I got to the Shamrock Boys Home, obviously it was a mansion. uh, And most of the homes that you go to, uh, at least in those times where you had house parents working eight hour shifts and then they would go home and another house parent would come in um, and that the, the homes were tore up, the holes in walls, the mattresses were stinky and horrible. The pillowcases were scrungy and dirty. And it just was like it was like it was it was horrible because it was kids rotating in and out all the time and nobody owned the home. They the state owned it. And then they had people coming in and working. Well, when you walked into the Shamrock Boys Home, man, you walked into this mansion. As I'd never seen anything like this before. I mean, we walked in the door. There was there was uh, 18 foot open beam ceilings, a big old fireplace that went up to the ceiling and, and out, out through the roof. Then you had a big old white grand piano and video games and a bar where they had soda and M&Ms and cookies. And it was like I was in this dream and walking into this place. It was like, I don't belong here. Like, I didn't deserve to be here. There's something wrong with this. This picture ain't right. The only thing I think of was like what I was going to steal when I walked in there because there's no way I was staying in this place. Most people would go, dude, you hit a home run, man. You got it. Nah, when you come from the streets and you go into a place like this, you're not comfortable. You're like, I don't belong here. And so you think about what you could steal because you know, you're not going to be here long. Well, Bob Shamrock was a different person. He owned the home. This was his house. He invited these kids to come live with him And he hired counselors to help him help us find out what our problems were. And so it was different than any other home I went to. They taught church there. That's where I found my faith. And I actually helped kids truly understand their issues. Mine, I was a fighter. Anytime anybody said anything to me, I would start to tear up. Like most people would get in an argument and you could sit there and guys would argue back and forth, back and forth. If I started to talk, I would start to cry. So instead of people seeing me cry, I hit them. So if somebody started the argument with me, it wasn't like I could talk back and forth because I couldn't talk because I would cry. So instead of that, from the time I was 10 years old, I was 13. 
If I got into a confrontation, they said something to me, I'd hit them. So it wasn't no conversation to be had, not because I thought I was going to beat them up because I thought I was tougher than them. It was because I didn't want anybody to see me cry. So I just hit them. I start fighting. And I got my aggressions out that way. And, and so my, my father seen that. He wasn't my father at the time. He saw the aggression that I had. And he said, okay, let me put you into sports. Let's help you take that anger and that frustration that you have. And let's put into something positive. And when he did that, my life changed because before I was this punk kid, the teacher would try to talk to me, try to tell me something. I would walk away. I wouldn't listen to him. I didn't want to have to deal with trying to talk with somebody. So I shut down. But in order to, for me to play sports, to be on the football field, on the wrestling mat, I had to have a C in every class. And I was in special ed because I didn't have an education when I went into high school. So I had to learn everything from kindergarten all the way up to seventh grade, eighth grade in order to be able to be in a freshman class. So I had to start from the bottom as a freshman in and out of special ed. That caused a bunch of fights because someone would say, and they didn't know me, would say, hey, there's a kid because we were right in the hallway and our class was at the end of the hallway and all the other kids would go into regular classes and I'd be going in there with special ed kids. And these guys would be standing there sometimes and make fun or even me or some other kid and I would, I would hit them. I'd be in a fight. Uh, so that was a whole other story in itself. And so I started by the time I reached my senior year, I was in mainstream courses. Um, I was had scholarships for wrestling, for football. I became relevant. I wasn't that punk kid anymore. I wasn't that guy that had no future and that nobody wanted to talk to. I was dating a cheerleader. I mean, my life went from the streets to a drug dealer, to a freaking punk kid, to now mainstream jock. A uh, huge difference. And one instant, I mean, literally in a hot second, all of it was over. I mean, it could have been. I went into wrestling practice. I had a great football season. Um, I had schools looking at me. Uh, my senior year, I was undefeated. I beat a Nevada state champion at, at 175 in Nevada. And then we had another one at, uh, we called it the Rotary Tournament in Susanville, which is the biggest Northern California tournament around. And I won that tournament at 185 because the weight classes in Nevada and the weight classes in California are different. So I wrestled 175 in Nevada, beat the Nevada state champion. And then at 185, the Nevada, because we were on the border in Susanville, came over to our tournament and I beat the 185 pound state champion in Nevada that wrestled in California in our weight class. I beat him. So those two guys that I had beat when undefeated my senior year, preparing for the big uh, uh, postseason, get on the mat, start training. You know, obviously you don't have the freshmen there to tape the mats together, to clean them, to get everything ready for practice. You just had guys coming in to help me prepare. And I get in there, I do a shot on a guy who weighs about 210 pounds and I'm practicing, I'm picking him up, I'm playing around. The coach says, you better take him down, you're going to start doing walls. And of course, I hated conditioning. I hated, I'd rather wrestle all day than do conditioning. And so I go to take him down and I slipped. I just literally, I slipped and fell. The guy fell on top of me. And I'm laying on the ground with a broken neck. I mean, that fast. I'm laying there. And the coach is saying, get up. And I can't get up. And I'm thinking to myself, come on, Ken, get up. Stop laying here. I can't move. And it was probably, it felt like, it felt like forever, an eternity not getting up, but it was only like two or three seconds. And that's when people started realizing, hey, after a minute or so, something's wrong. 
they came in, uh, ambulance came there, put me in. I think it was a Star Wars board where they clamp it underneath you. They slam a board on top, pick you up, take you away. Went to Redding, California, saw a specialist there. I mean, even when they put me in a bed, the hospital bed, I couldn't move. They would flip me. And if I had to go to the bathroom, they'd have a hole in the bed. You'd go to the bathroom or, or flip you back over and go to the bathroom. But even when I was laying straight up, I had to use a mirror to look at the TV because I couldn't sit up. I mean, I couldn't move. I had to lay flat. The whole time I'm thinking, okay, how long is this going to take? I, I could get out of this, right? I've always accomplished everything. Doc comes in, slides this x-ray up there. I'm looking through this mirror and I'm going, okay, that's that my neck. It, it, did, it was crooked. It didn't look right. And uh, I remember you saying you broke your neck. And even then I didn't understand. I didn't understand what that meant. I just thought a broken bone. I broke bones before. I'm like, okay. And I remember saying, how long? How long before the recovery? And I, he's kind of shaking his head like, and, and you know, I'm 17 years old. And, and my and my dad, isn't my dad at the time, Bob Shamrock's there at the hospital with me. And, and he calls him out. And my dad comes back in and and uh, he tells me, uh, you know, you broke your neck. And, you know, uh, they're, they're going to have to fuse it and, and you're going to be out for a long time and, and, and you might not be able to play contact sports again. And, and, and that's when, that's when it got real because everything I was, my DNA, everything was sports, man. I didn't accomplish anything because I wanted to, I accomplished everything because what I could get for what I accomplished. And that was getting good grades, going to college, doing the things I had to do because I could play sports. Without sports, I had no drive, no, no drive to do anything without having the opportunity to play sports. And when that was taken away, I got depressed. I remember being in the hospital, laying in the bed, and I was just down, man. I mean, I was in a bad way, uh, very, very pissed off all the time, <clears throat> not in a very good mood every single day, just thinking about what am I going to do? Like, I don't know anything else. I'm 17 years old, one month away from my 18th birthday. And I remember the word he said to me, and it, and it couldn't have been, it could have been taken a whole lot different, but for me, it was, it was just so real. and so a matter of fact that that's the way I took it. And I remember my dad saying to me, he goes, you can, <laughs> If you lay there and pout about this, he says, nothing, you aren't going to change a thing. He says, we're the only one that can change the direction you're going right now. If you lay there and pout about it, what are you going to do? I remember thinking to myself, he's right. I mean, in my head, I'm running around going, because that was hope to me. Like, that was literally the first thing I heard that said, this isn't, this isn't over. Like, I can change this. Like I have an opportunity to change the direction. I can change this. Doctor doesn't know me. He doesn't know me. He's literally doing this thing off of a normal situation. I'm not normal. I'm a, I'm not normal. I'm a different person. And he can't tell me that I can't do something when he doesn't know what I'm willing to do to get there. And I remember thinking to myself, my dad's right, man. I mean, I can change this. And I remember I got out after I got out. I had the halo on. I tore the bolts out twice, got into a fight one time because I walked outside when it was thunderstorm out there and it started the lightning and kids said, hey, you better get out of the rain. Or you're going to be shocked because you got an antenna on your forehead. And 
I didn't take it very well. <laughs> so I ended up ripping the bolts out of my head. But it, it was a journey, man. It was like, I remember getting it off and they took the bolts off and the halo off and my head went broke like it fell because all the muscles weren't there anymore. And I had to learn to walk again, like with balance and stuff. And uh, I was, I probably maybe two and a half years after that. Uh, of course, uh, the colleges were gone. Nobody would, I couldn't even get anybody to call me back. I mean, it was like I had to play. Uh, so I had to walk on Shasta College and play football two and a half years later. I walk Ken, on. Ken, Ken, you just mentioned that, uh, that you know, we, we know you as, as, as the world's most dangerous man as, as a wrestler <laughs> and a grappler and everything, but you mentioned football there and uh, you, you you ended up playing uh, collegiate football, but uh, your, your high school, uh, you had to be a terror on that damn football with your intensity and your, and your power and everything. Where you you were saw that uh, after a football player too, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember in high school I was I I was accused of doing drugs. I mean, I'm serious, and I never touched. I mean, I can't say that after I got to grow up and started having success, I I had my run. But when I was a kid, and I was I never touched beer, I never touched drugs. I was I did did do any of that stuff, even though I was a street kid. I never touched any of that stuff. And I remember when I was on the sidelines, I was pacing up and down and, ah, oh, let's go, you know, offense would be out there. Coach wouldn't let me play offense because when I got the football, when I was a running back, I broke loose and I was on the 10-yard line and everybody was behind me and I slowed down so I could hit somebody. <laughs> he goes, okay, get out. <laughs> Daring somebody to hit you, right? Yours is one somebody. <laughs> yeah, come on, hurry up. <laughs> Can, can uh, tell us about Bob Shamrock. He seems like a, an incredible man. And was was the home that he were in? Did he have money aside from the charity, or was this all a nonprofit that he, he raised money had raised money every year for his charity? This is all his money. He put all of his money into this home, this mansion, and uh, the state gave I don't know it was twelve hundred dollars per kid. We had eighteen kids there, and he put every dime back into the home. He did not have a bank account where he had a savings uh, where he would uh, put money away from his earnings. Every dime that he made, he put back into the home. And uh, he was a he was a tremendous individual. Uh, he would give the shirt off of his back. I know you hear the people say that a lot, but he's done it. I mean, he has literally done that in life with these kids that would spit on him and try to fight him. And, um, and he loved them. I mean, guys would try to fight him and he'd bear hug him. I mean, just grab him and he hug him. And, and as they're like fighting and trying to get it, he say, Hey man, I love you. Like settle down. It's like, I'm just trying to do this because I care about you. I mean, and you didn't see that from anybody else. Any of the homes that I went to, everybody was there is collecting a paycheck. This was his home. And he was putting his money into this home. And then he, whatever he got paid from those things, all that money went into clothes and to, you know, things that kids wanted to do. He would buy his cars. I mean, everybody that turned 18, he'd buy them a car so they could have a car and be able to leave or, or do whatever they were going to do. And so it, this was, I, you never heard about this from any other home. And he loved these kids. He taught them about Christ. He could say, you can either accept Christ or not accept him. That's on you. But he did teach it. And he allowed them to have their own opinions. And he was just a very, very unique individual. But he had tons of love for, for every kid that came in that home. And his success rate was like 95% kids that went there. They all went, they all did their time and they were all successful when they left. Well, was there a certain, did he have, did he, I'm sure he had, I'm sure he, 
I'm sure he had that, the uh, rules and regulations, but what, as a kid, were you required to participate in sports or did he kind of let you gravitate to wherever you wanted to gravitate, except it's a, a street? Yeah, most of the kids there, probably I would say, I was the only one um, at least the first couple of years I was there. I was the only one that was in high school. Um, the rest of them were in continuation school. Because I got there when I was 13 and I hadn't been a freshman yet, right? A lot of the kids got there when they were 15, 16, or 17, and they were in high school, but they were behind in credits. So they had to go to continuation. Me, I was very fortunate that I got caught when I got caught because I hadn't started high school yet. So I could literally start in uh with with uh with the credits as a freshman, uh work my way as a as in special ed to make sure that I completed all my courses and get the credits I need as a freshman to move on to be a sophomore and then a junior and then be in mainstream courses. Um so I was very fortunate, but a lot of kids that came there, I was the youngest. Um, I was the youngest kid in that home. And by the time I was 15, I ran the home. But again, like I said, I was I was very fortunate that I got caught at a young age. Well, Ken, was there a certain moment there that uh, you, that you said you went in there and all you could think of was you're not going to be here very long? Was there a certain <laughs> moment there that was a seminal moment that, you know what, I'm going to give this a chance. Maybe this different lifestyle works. Yeah, I got a story. It's it, it was and it's it's one that I don't know if most people will understand. But for me, being an aggressive kid. Uh, I ended up having respect for Bob Shamrock. And I remember uh, I was in a, it was called it the red room. We all had colors for the room and there was three kids in the room with me. And it was one kid's turn to vacuum the room. And this is probably after I was there about six months. Um, And, and I remember thinking after this happened, like, okay, this is okay. This, this, this is might be something special. And I remember as I was uh, telling a kid to vacuum because if the room didn't get done, we all got kind of in trouble for not having a clean room. So I remember the kid didn't vacuum the room and I went down and I grabbed him and I brought him up the room and I beat him up. And uh, this kid was 17. I think I was uh, four, just turned 14. And so I beat this kid up uh, because he didn't do what I told him to do. And uh, I remember my dad came up and he said, what's going on? And I said, he didn't vacuum the room. And so he told the kid to leave. And then <laughs> he grabbed me by the back of the neck and the seat of the pants. And he slammed me into one closet, slammed me into another closet, slammed me into the door, threw me on the bed. I came running at him again. He grabbed me, slammed me into the wall, picked me up, threw me on the bed. And I stopped because I knew like, OK, that hurt. <laughs> so I looked at him and I said, why did you do that? He goes, how does it feel? I go, what are you talking about? He said, how does it feel to get beat up and not have an understanding of why you got beat up for it? He goes, what are you talking about? I said, you just beat that kid up. I said, you're back in the room, right? I said, how does he know what right is? How does he know that he didn't do it right? Did you tell him he didn't do it right? And I just like literally like it clicked. Like I just beat this kid up because he didn't back in the room, right? But I didn't tell him, hey, you didn't back in the room, right? I just told him, hey, the room is filthy. You didn't vacuum it. And I beat him up. I didn't show him what was dirty. I didn't show him what was wrong. I just beat him up. I was 14. No one's ever explained to me that process. Like, I just thought, okay, it's not done. I'm going to beat him up because I'm going to suffer for it. And he literally just said, listen, 
This is how it feels when you beat somebody up and doesn't understand why they're getting beat up. I'm telling you, if you explain it to him and then he doesn't do it, that's a different story. But if you don't do that, then you're beating him up and he doesn't understand why you're doing it. And at that point, I know I said a lot of people won't get this because you got to come for I come from to truly understand that because there's a lot of things that happened to me in my life that I didn't understand why they were doing it to me because they were just doing it without even explaining it to me because I was just a kid that was a number. So we put you here, put you there, but don't explain it to me. So I think at that point in time is when I said, you know, even though I was pissed off, I calmed down after it and it made sense. Like, yeah, okay, I get it. And so I think from that point, I was like, I, I, I think this might be different because like I said, anywhere else, they wouldn't touch you. They wouldn't say anything. They would just mark a day off. There was no discipline. There was no explanations. There was no instruction. And it just felt like this place was so much different, especially when he would hug you. He would literally come up and just give you a hug for no reason. I never, ever been hugged from the time I was a baby. From my, 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 I, don't, I don't ever remember it. But I don't ever remember being hugged from the time I was a kid all the way up until I was at the Shamrock Boys Home where I got my first hug from Bob Shamrock. I had never been hugged by my mother. I had never been hugged. I never knew my father until I was 42 years old. But I never had any of that. So I didn't even know what that was. Anybody that ever tried to hug me, there was a, a another purpose that they were trying to get, which wasn't good. Uh, but every But that was the first time I really felt what a hug that literally meant something that was a caring hug. It was, it was just, it, it's just something you can't explain if you've never been there where you're thinking like you've gone through all that and somebody needs to come up to and hug you until they love you and they care about you. It's, 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 it's a feeling you'll never understand unless you come from where I come from. That's what really changed my mind along with that explanation and in that room where that fight happened. And then he thumped me around and then explained it to me. I, those, those combinations of things truly helped me understand what life is truly about. What a remarkable guy Bob Shamrock was. Yeah. He had to be just a remarkable guy. And I, I've, I've read a little bit about him and how you've honored him and everything. He had to, he had to be so, uh, so proud of it. Tell us how you, you said it was 14 until you, you realized who your blood father was. It through sports that he popped back into your life or how, how did he reconnect with you? Yeah, I was 42 years old, 41, 42 years old. My careers, I already done my careers. Um, my, my biological brother, uh, I have two of them. Uh, and one, one was doing life in prison. Uh, and, and the other, uh, was in and out of jail and, and, uh, has had three or four different strokes because of drugs and stuff, but it, it, they, they they were rough, but he wanted to know, uh, the one that's doing life in prison wanted to know who, uh, who his father was, who his biological father was, wanted to know, wanted to find him. And so when he reached out, uh, searching, um, he ended up finding him. Uh, and he, he basically put a search out for uh, Richard Kilpatrick because my original name was Kilpatrick. Uh, so he put a search out for Richard Kilpatrick in Georgia because that's where we were born at. And uh, he ended up getting a hit, called the guy, uh, found out that uh, he was our dad. Uh, then he came up and visited. Uh, and uh, it, 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 because of the situation with my biological mother who, who married four different men. Um, 
struggled, ended up passing away with an aneurysm. Uh, so it wasn't like we could just ask her what happened, but he told us that uh, when, and, and we, and this, it follows along with the actual thing that I know that happened was that we were loaded up in a car and we were, we were taken to Napa, California. She married a guy from the air force and we were loaded up and then we were taken to Napa, California. And he said that he didn't even have a notice or anybody telling him that, that we were leaving. And of course, in them days, you can't just get on social media and, and try to look people up. Uh, if you were moving to Napa, California uh, from Georgia, it's a long distance and it'd be very difficult to find somebody uh, if they're picking up and leaving and not telling you where they're going. Uh, and that's what happened is she picked us up. She took us three boys. I had two older brothers. She picked us up. Uh, I think we were five, six and seven at the time. And uh, and we ended up leaving. And so he never knew where we had been until my brother, Robbie, uh, reached out to try to find him and, 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 and connected with him. And then when we connected, uh, I told him that I already had a dad that, you know, uh, unfortunately, I, it's not fair what happened. But this is life. This is what it is. He raised me. He's my dad. And so that was a struggle for a while. Um, he ended up passing away uh, about two years ago uh, in Georgia. Uh, but we had had a relationship, but it was more of a friendship relationship. I finally, finally got that him to understand that, you know, I, even though it was unfair to you or however it happened, I have a life and I have a father and I have all these things that have, have that I've built, um, but we can know each other and we can be friends. Wow. What, what, an, what an unbelievable journey uh, of a story that, that kind of comes full circle uh, for, for, for you and, and for him. Was your goal in life uh, when you first started talking about how much you love sports, was it to play professional football? Uh, and then when that got killed, the next it never became fighting because there wasn't really a way to make money fighting unless it was boxing right yeah you know i had always always wanted to play in the nfl and my goal was to do that i was on my way i thought i had a great opportunity um played in uh, junior college uh was a team captain i led the team in tackles was all american uh nobody would touch me i couldn't get a university to touch me uh, I had a difficult, very, very difficult time passing the SATs. Uh, I, I just didn't have enough because of my broken neck my senior year. I missed half my senior year. Uh, it was it was a struggle. I mean, I, I seemed like every time I turned around, I started to get ahead. I started getting my education, and then I got cut off at the knees again. I went to college. Uh, had to take some basic courses to play football, um, you know, and even that was tough. Uh, I made it. I played football, but then I had to pass the SATs and I just didn't have all the skill sets uh, to really go and be able to pass all those educational. And I know a lot of people say, well, SATs, you just write your name and you pass. I had a very difficult time with with education, uh, you know, grammar, uh, spelling, uh, math, math equations, uh, because I was never in school long enough to really get get it all down. And so it, it, when it came to taking tests, I struggled. And so I couldn't get in. Um, it's not like it is today where you walk right on and play, play in the NFL if you're good enough. Uh, and, and back then, you know, you, you know, you had pretty, pretty much go to a university. And uh, 
I didn't get that opportunity. So I had to think of other ways. I did four, four tough mans. I won all four of them uh, just to make money. I bounced in nightclubs. I hit a guy here in Reno, uh, put him in a coma uh, because I hit him and shoved his cheekbone up into his brain. And I was working uh, a club as a bouncer then and uh, ended up shutting the club down. And uh, it was called the Premier Club. And uh, Mills Lane was the judge at the time, who was the boxing uh, guy, but he was the, he was the uh, DA here uh, in Reno for a while. And he called it mutual combat, like nobody was at fault, but then they took it civil. And of course, this guy's dad was the, <laughs> was the game warden here in, uh, in, in Reno. And of course, you know, just everything is gaming here. Uh, I couldn't find an attorney to even defend me. Uh, so that didn't work out too well, but you know, I am where I'm at. It, it all worked out, but it was, a, like I said, when you talk, if I was to go back and try to explain everything that I had gone through in my life, it couldn't do it in a movie. It would have to be a series because it just, <laughs> it has never stopped. Uh, it, it, my whole life has always been something. Even when I got into MMA, it was a whole nother journey because there was so many things that I had done to get where I need to be there. And then while I was there, there was so many other things that happened that I had to bounce around to try to make it. And then when I got into the WWF, it was like, I got there and then I felt comfortable. And then I started going out and doing all these crazy things. And that in itself was a journey. I mean, it just seems like it was a constant story from the time that I was born to even to this day where we're, Locking up Balor Bare Knuckle. There's just so much that I've been able to accomplish and also been in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Kenny, 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 take it, take us. Okay, you're in junior college, you play junior college football, you see the NFL's not working. So, you know, you're in California then, right? How do you end up in Carolina with Nelson Royal and George Scott and that group there? Yeah, actually, at the time I was in um, Reno. Uh, I was bouncing in the premier club at the time. My, my dad actually lived in Suzville, still had the group home. And of course I had already gone through the college. I played college. I did a lot of stuff. I was bouncing. I didn't know what to do. My dad said, Hey, how about you try some pro wrestling? And of course I pro wrestling to me, I remember watching with my dad and stuff like that, but it was just never really like, I did it because I wanted to hang out and stuff, but I never really looked at it like something I could do. Like, it's not what, it's not my thing. Right. And so I remember when I was watching, I was like, man, that's, that's, that's pretty cool, but that's, you know, I want to hit people. <laughs> and I, I remember uh, my dad says, you know, well, just try it, man. You never know. You might like it. So I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. I'm not doing anything, but going around bouncing and beating people up and, and doing tough mans. And I was like, yeah, was, why not? Right. Let's just see what it is. So I remember we go to Buzz Sawyer and he's in Sacramento, California. So I'm driving from Reno to Sacramento every weekend to work out with Buzz Sawyer. And so Buzz was going to Japan at the time. And so I'm driving back and forth on the weekends to, to train with them. And I remember the first couple of times I go up there. Um, the, actually, my first time I go up there, Buzz rolls with me, right? He goes, well, come on, let's get on in. We were in some gymnasium in a, in a gym, no ring, just a wrestling mat. And he goes, he brings me on there and he just roll. And it was me, him, and a, and a couple other people. I think his brother was there. I'm not sure. So I get in, I roll with Buzz. And we go for uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes. And he's he's Buzz was a tough dude. I mean, like that first five minutes we went was a fight. Uh, and I don't think he realized how tough I was. Uh um, and I ended up wearing him out. Like I would have got the best of him because he got tired. But when he was fresh, it was head to head. Like we were going at each other. And uh, he goes, uh, okay, 
why don't you come on down and we'll start working. So I go down there and every single weekend we're on a wrestling mat and we're just kind of wrestling and moving around. And then he says, Hey, um, I got an idea. Uh, says, I'm going to start bringing people in and training them and, and teaching them pro wrestling. He says, I'm going to do tryouts. And he says, uh, what I'd like you to do is for you to be able to, to, you know, wrestle with them and see if they'll pass. And he says, I'll tell you which ones I want to pass and which ones I don't. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He goes, if I tell you that guy's not going to pass, I want you to stretch him, like make him quit. I was like, all right. And so he goes, I'll give you 200 bucks. I didn't realize he was making three grand for a tryout. <laughs> so, so I figured I'd pay for my gas in my, in my hotel. Right. And, and, uh, we, and food. So I thought, okay, cool. So I go in there and we must've done this for six weeks. He bring big dudes, small dudes, and I beat them all up. Just, just thrash them. And then he would let these guys, and I didn't understand this. He would let these guys pass that had no athletic build whatsoever. Like, okay, that guy, I want him to pass. And I was like, okay. And then I, 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 I after I was there, while well, I started to stay, cause I started talking to the guys that were passing. One of them owned his own plumbing shop. Another one was a manager of a bank. Another one was a teacher. Like, and I'm thinking to myself, these other guys, that, the big old dudes that were like horses, like football players, they didn't have jobs. Right. And he, so he didn't know they didn't have any like income. And so he would make me beat them up. They would quit. And then he let these other guys pass because he was milking them for money. And I didn't understand this. Right. <laughs> so you're on thrashing all these guys. And then the sad thing about this, because Buzz had a, a bad habit. Um, he ended up ODing in, in a bathroom in Sacramento at a club. And, and I found out about it while we were there that he had died. And so we had to find somewhere else. And this is where the Nelson Royal comes in. Whereas my dad searched around trying to find good wrestling schools. And he found one in Mooresville, North Carolina. And he asked me, so what do you think about, you know, going and moving to Mooresville? And I had just gotten married and I just had a kid. And he said, uh, you know, how do you feel about up moving and, and, and going down to, to, to Mooresville? And, and of course I kind of enjoyed, I hate to say it, but at the time I kind of enjoyed doing what Buzz was having me do. It was kind of fun. Right. And I felt like, okay, yeah, let's go there and we'll, we'll see what happens. And I get up there and, and uh, Nelson says, we're going to do a tryout. And the bell goes off in my head. Like, Oh, they're going to try to screw me. Like they're going to try to take our money. Cause I literally was a part of this ring. And so I get in there. And so he has us running in these dirt clods and this, this field where there's just not but dirt clods. And he's got this Western store. And so his we're running. Rodeo, his oh, rodeo oh, oh, yeah. He was crazy, man. Yeah. And he had us running and doing push-ups and all these things for about an hour and a half push-ups and dirt clods, just having us do crazy squat, all this stuff. And then he brings us into his barn where he has his wrestling ring and he goes, okay, get in the ring. And he tells this dude, like it's probably 260, maybe 6'2", 6'3", kind of barrel chested, not really big and strong, like muscular, like, but just thick. So he gets in there and he sends one guy in there and goes, okay, I want you guys to wrestle until I tell you to stop. So this one kid gets in there and this big dude throws him around and kid quits. After he went through all that conditioning, he quits. He throws another guy in there and he wrestles with this kid and he quits in about five minutes. Then he says, okay, you go in there. And now I wasn't no slouch and I kind of knew what was coming. And so I jumped in with this dude and I literally just stayed out of trouble for five, 10 minutes until he got tired. I just waited him out, just kept pushing on him, staying out of trouble. And finally he got tired and I beat the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> Nelson turned and looked at his friends. He goes, 
Colt Steele was his name. And he goes, I think we'll keep him. Uh, <laughs> great. John, John, and I've been word Kenny. He, uh, Nelson had his rodeo ground. He had a charity rodeo out there. And, of course, the rodeo ground, as you know, had that old chopped dirt in it, had yeah. cow manure and a horse manure in it. He would have these guys out low crawling and push-ups and set up. That was there. me. <laughs> that was you. I've been yeah. there. I saw all that stuff. Yeah. But hey, people don't realize it's true, man. And uh, Delson, that barn had to be 130 degrees oh, in yes. that barn. Brutal. Brutal. Yes. People don't realize what a freak uh, Kenny is. You know, one time me and Ron had, were holding Kenny. <laughs> and big, big boss man is going to hit him with his nightstick. And so we're sitting there holding him. Big boss man hits him, and he busts his mouth wide open. That's <laughs> it. And when we do, you can feel the kid start, start to explode. And Ron, real calm, with that James Earl Jones voice says, that was boss. <laughs> yeah, that was boss. That was boss. That was boss. Yeah. yeah he, I, I, saw, I saw a clip where he did with Hannibal. You benched 585 one time in a competition? 605. 605. And this yeah. was fresh, right? You hadn't been really pushing it that hard. No, I was six, 605 with no shirt on. No shirt on, just straight bench. Yeah. That's where, I mean, that's world class. What were you weighing at the time? 222. And, and about what year was that? That was in, uh, let's see, California was 90, 80. So I would say 89. Yeah, 88, 89. How was, was that set up, Kenny? I mean, how did you guys come to do that? To do which the, one? The bench off there. I'm sorry, what? Was the, it the, the left there? I mean, we would. Oh, was the it left. A, yeah. It was in, it was Lynn Adams' gym, uh, where it was just uh, two days before a bench press contest. Uh, and Lynn Adams, uh, unfortunately, got killed uh, uh, a few years back in the military. A great dude, good person, good friend. Uh, and, but uh, it was a bunch of guys around that were spotting me. And uh, I ended up hitting a uh, 605 in the gym. And then I hit 585 in a, in a actual bench press contest, but my best has been 605. And that was right during the time at the same time you had our city and uh, Ken Lane that when they first broke 700, right at that yeah. same time, that was the world record at the time. So you, you were, a, that was a world-class lift you did. I was strong in high school. I weighed 160 pounds when I did a bench press contest there and I benched 315. And that was in high school at six, 17 years old. Yep. 17. Wow. Yep. <laughs> That's just God given strength. Yeah. Yep. You know, was Ron, Ron was like that. Ron, Ron was a 600 pound bench presser and it's just, it's just God, God given strength. And they don't practice. They don't train for it. Or you just go in and you work out and you just do it. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you, when you were, uh, you know, doing all this fighting, when you were a kid, uh, you were, you were, you big, uh, are you just naturally strong at that time too? Or did size start coming to you a little bit later or, or were you always like pretty big guy? Yeah, I think I developed when I was 19 and 20 years old. Uh, it was when I broke my neck, uh, after I had started training, cause I started really getting after it and, and really focusing on lifting and creating muscle in order for me to be able to play sports. Cause I knew I had the broken neck and that I had to build muscle around it. So I, I really spent, spent my life inside of a gym. Uh, we had a gym at the house. So I was training all the time. I trained twice a day and eat right. And so I put on within probably the time that I broke my neck and 
And then I had the recovery, uh, seven, 17 years old, one month away from my 18th birthday. By the time I was 19 and a half years old, probably a couple months away from my 20th birthday, I weighed 200 and 205 pounds. And I was, I think I was 140 pounds after they took the halo off. Wow. Wow. Indeed, I, you have, after your, after your workout with Nelson there, do you remember your first match where you actually got paid, uh, to, to go in working for Nelson? Who was against? Yeah. Um, I never, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I, I don't think I ever got paid. Uh, <laughs> we, we did, a lot of times we made our money back from the travel, but, um, we just hit the road and we knew that a lot of times we, we weren't going to make anything but a hundred or 200 bucks. And, and that would just kind of cover our travel and stuff. But, you know, uh, I, I took it as a journeyman. Like we were, we were, we were practicing for a craft uh, to pay off down the road. And so I never really, really thought much about trying to make that big money. Cause I knew where I was at and that it was more of an opportunity for people to see me. So I wasn't looking at the money. I was looking at more being in front of people, being able to put together videotapes and, and highlight reels to be able to send to the right people so I could get to a bigger level. And it really worked out because that's how I really got hooked up with the what we call the hybrid uh, pro wrestling, which is over in Japan. And that's how I got seen. And that was a UWF, right? With uh, Fujiwara and uh, Sakuraba, I guess, uh, when you first first got over there that ended up forming with you guys, ended up forming Pancras, correct? Yeah, we actually was the UWF um, first, which had Maeda, uh, Takata, and Fujiwara. That Those were the three big names. Uh, and so I was over there with them for, for I believe it was two fights. And it was really a, a more of a hybrid wrestling where it was like a fight. But the, the ending was predetermined. So it was like when you were watching it, you were thinking it was real, but the ending was predetermined. So uh, that was the hybrid wrestling. And then Fanaki and Suzuki had come to me and kept asking about what if it was real? Like, what if we turned pro wrestling real? Like we made wrestling real. What would it look like? And, and, and then they came to me and asked me if I would be interested in joining them and, and starting the Pancras organization and making it real. And uh, I said, heck yeah. I said, uh, the, the, the real, the more real, the better for me. And uh, so that's what we did. We literally took what we thought was a, a basically a hybrid wrestling and we, we turned it real. And that's what Pancras was. It was a spinoff of, of the actual transitions from wrestling to hybrid wrestling to real fighting wrestling. You were you're known as a submission guy. I always just assumed that you had grown up in mixed martial arts or martial arts of some kind. You were just a tough guy who could obviously wrestle very well, and then you had the broken neck, and obviously you could punch very hard because you went a bunch of tough men. But your submission style came that you learned that as an adult in Japan, right, during that time. Yeah, before, I had. Before that, you didn't have any submissions, correct? No. Uh, when I when I actually stepped in and 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 fought my first uh, match against Anjo, uh, it was in front of seventeen thousand people, and I had no absolutely no submission skills whatsoever, just wrestling and 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 punching, and I it had to be open hand, and I won that one. Uh, obviously, the ending was predetermined, but I literally handled myself through that whole match because everything was real in between, like you went after each other. And I literally handled myself very good. And then uh, when we turned uh, Pancras to be the shoot, 
And we had the first match with Fanaki, who was a superstar over there and probably pound for pound the best fighter over there. Um, no one thought that I was going to win. Uh, myself, in my mind, I knew that I had a chance to win because nobody really knew what I could do full speed. Like I, no one ever saw me go full speed with the punching and the kicking and the submissions. It was always somewhat controlled because the outcome was predetermined. So no one really understood what I was capable of wide open. Um, Fanaki found out th that night when we went real, uh, and no one saw me winning except me. And even in my mind, I knew Fanaki, how good he was. I knew it was a tall task because I didn't have the experience he had. I only had a year and a half at that time. I only had about a year or a year and a half of, of, of training. And most of that was in pro wrestling, hybrid pro wrestling. Wasn't in a shoot. I had no experience in the shoot. And so walking in there and fighting Fanaki in the main event, one of the top guys in Japan and winning was a huge, huge success for me. Ken, would you say you're king of Pancras, you're a king of Japan, a super fight champion, UFC champion. Uh, you held every single title that there is in MMA. In my opinion, you're the greatest mixed martial artist of all time. Uh, but was the victory over me your greatest victory that you ever had when you got my submission. Would you consider that better than Gracie and Severn and all those other guys that, 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 well, hey, Kenny, I've had me, 900 me, victories over him. So, you know, you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me frame, let me frame this up first before I say one of the greatest victories. Um, I was in, I'm in the ring rolling around with Blackman because Blackman wanted to learn. And so I was in there teaching him some of the stuff that I, I'd been doing. And there were some other guys in there and we were rolling around and Bradshaw comes walking up like himself going, I can do that. Yeah. That ain't nothing. Come on, you guys, you're not working hard enough. I was like, Hey, why don't you come on in here? He goes, nah, man, I, I, I don't want to hurt you guys. <laughs> so I say, I'll tell you what, I'll lay flat on the mat. You grab your best hole. Bradshaw comes back out. The wise and smart guy he hears goes, I don't know what he holds. <laughs> I said, grab a headlock, bro. You know, I'll grab a headlock. So he grabs a headlock. I tell him I'll, I'll submit you within a minute. And, uh, and he goes, okay. So cousin, he grabs his hold. What was it? 10 seconds. Or was oh, that come on. It was seconds? <laughs> at least 12 or 13, at least 12 or 13 seconds. And I think at one point you you got a little. And you're nervous. bragging, Layfield. <laughs> I think at one point you were nervous that you thought, "Oh my God, this guy may have me." Yo, it was especially when you put your weight on. When you grab the head, like I said, "Damn, this dude needs to lose some weight." <laughs> <laughs> Bruce Pritchard has told that story a million freaking times. He was there, and you go grab a hold. I go, I, I, I don't know a hold. You go grab a headlock. Go, I'm gonna grab a working headlock on Kid Camera. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was fun. <laughs> for you it was yeah you remember steve what steve blackman said he goes oh dude that was bad <laughs> 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 uh, oh steve <laughs> that was bad bro <laughs> when we got done i said look all right all right Look, I admit I got beat by the UFC champion. Okay, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> he goes, he goes, yeah, grab a hole. I don't know a hole. <laughs> That's right. that, was, that was classic. <laughs> I knew this would not end well. 
when Kenny when Kenny started saying get in the ring, that's when I knew I had to stall. I was trying to stall, but, but yeah. I don't want to hurt anybody. Okay, let's. But I gotta give you credit. You got in the ring. Yes, he did. Yeah. Oh, I did yeah. get in the ring. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, and I tried. I did try. I, <laughs> yeah. I remember he tightened up like he squeezed me, like just trying to hold me so he could at least hold on for whatever time he could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. he literally he literally was blown up i was like dude don't matter how he would, you squeeze i'm getting out <laughs> yeah he was going for an eight, company, eight eight second rodeo ride you know yes you know, yes <laughs> yeah. by then the whole company had come down and watching this match i'm going okay i gotta yeah. stay on top of you, you know what you know what i was afraid of though was that that um he would jump in and he would grab the headlock and he would hold on for about i don't know eight seconds or so and he let go and run out of the ring and said i win <laughs> Believe me, that's I mean, what he does. <laughs> that, that occurred to me, and, and I thought, you know what? If I go to get out, he, he'll grab my ankle. If he grabs my ankle, I'm in a lot of trouble. Yeah, yeah. Just saying, and I'm you did start the uh, the ankle lock there, Ken. That just a lot, yeah. of, a lot of people don't know that that Kurt Angle move there. I mean, he did. Uh, how did you just develop that from the UFC or your MMA fights or what? Yeah, that was a shoot. I mean, those were ways for you to hook people, whether it's a heel hook or, or an ankle lock or a knee bar. Uh, those were all things that you could actually do in a shoot. So I remember talking to Kurt when I was on his podcast and I told him you know, I was always ribbing him a little bit because people were always trying to start something with me and him. So I would kind of feed it a little bit and people would say, he stole your move. And I see you steal anything. He can't do it right. He doesn't do it right. Just because I knew it would get back to him. He go, what do you mean I ain't doing it right? Because <laughs> I was like, I mean, I do it for a shoot, man. And his stuff is all work. He doesn't do it right. And I remember I got on the podcast with him and I kind of joked with him. I said, hey, brother, he goes, what do you mean I don't do it right, man? I said, no, man, I listen, I understand. I said, if you do, if you did it right, people would be getting their legs broke. So I didn't do it right when we did went in there and did it in a, in a actual work thing. You can't do it right. Or somebody would roll and break their ankle. <laughs> when, when Kurt first came in, he had a couple of young guys uh, that were kind of messing in the ring, just horseplay, you know, just horseplay and house shows and stuff like that. And Kurt came to me and he says, what should I do about, about this? And I said, you want a gold medal in wrestling? <laughs> what do you, what do you want to do? Do and not it, let them go over. Do not yeah. let them brag. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you could tell a light bulb came on like, okay, I can handle this. You know, he thought there was some professional wrestling way. Right. To so next yeah. house show, sure enough, they go to do a little horse play. He spins around, does a bunch of stuff. <laughs> it stopped after that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's funny too. Cause like um, when I was in there too, it was kind of the same thing. It was like, I was working, walking on eggshells because the last thing you want to do is have guys not trust you. Like you right. go in there and you stretch them and they're like, dude, shit, I ain't going to give them anything when I'm in there. So I was kind of the same way too. It's like, I didn't want to do anything to anybody because I didn't want them not to be able to feel free to work with me. So I, I get what he was saying. i tell you, if, yeah. I don't know if you ever heard this story or not, but you, you were supposed to be, well, you know, obviously knew this part. You're supposed to be in the brawl for all. Uh, and I think we were, I think it was Madison Square Garden. I'm not sure, but you're, you're going to fight one of the Harris boys. So when the Harris boys found out they were fighting you, they called, he <laughs> called his wife on the payphone and they, and I could hear him. He goes, no, no, I'm not working tonight. So he tells his wife, he's not working, but he doesn't back out of the fight. 
He's going to go in the fight. He just doesn't want his wife what to see the watch. Well, that yeah. wasn't a work. And then, and then when you went in there and told Vince, rightfully so, hey, I got nothing to prove, UFC champion. There's no reason for me to be in this. They put the uh, Flash Funk, Too Cold Scorpio in there with the Harris Boy. I watched him go back and call his wife. He goes, hey, I'm on the show tonight. <laughs> you know, I think people don't understand that the reason why I did that and and they have to understand this, that I worked so hard at that point in time, I had worked so hard to gain everybody's trust, like to get in the ring and wrestle with them and then feel comfortable that I wasn't going to hurt them. Like I wasn't going to, like I'd be there when I was supposed to be there and, and be able to know what spots I need to be in and not uh, overdo something. And I worked so hard to gain that trust. And then I was asked to go back in there and then beat somebody up. And, and to me, I'm thinking to myself, man, I, I don't want to go back to something that I had left to be able to try to, to be professional into something like this. I don't want to cross that lineup. And I remember telling Vince, I said, listen, I, this is not something that I think will work for me. I said, I'm a professional fighter. This is what I do for a living and have done. And for me to step in and fight these guys, I've got nothing to gain from this. Like, let's say I go in there and somebody gets lucky and hits me with a shot. I'm done. Like, I'm literally done as the world's most dangerous man. Why would I go in there in this situation where it heavily favors a tough man, not a professional, not a trained fighter, but a tough man because they're one minute and you can't wrestle them and keep them on the ground. You wrestle them, you take them down, they stand you back up again. There are so many variables to a professional fighter getting beat in this, in this, in this type of fight. And in my mind, I'm saying, I, there's no way I was going to get beat, but there was always that chance that somebody can land something that could catch me and I'd be done for a couple hundred thousand dollars. It's just, especially when I'm used to making a whole lot more than that. And you want me to fight basically for free. Yeah. Ken, those of us that were in the tournament, we're glad you had that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, like I said, it just, there's a lot of there. I just thought it just didn't, that just didn't make sense for me to go in there with my level of experience and, and my level of fighting to go in there against guys that, you know, had never really fought professionally. And I just felt that's just so, that's just so irresponsible. And the flip side of that, what if I do hurt them? What if I hit them and I hurt them? I mean, it's, it's just not good business. Yeah. And then their reputation is gone forever. Yeah. If you would have won Ken, it wouldn't have done anything for you. No. You're the UFC no. champion. You're the super fight champion. You, yeah. You're, you're the world's most dangerous man. That ABC and, and you listen, I, 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 you know, again, you can sit here and say that, but there was no doubt in my mind I win, right? I mean, I just, it's just no question, right? I mean, this is what I do and I've done and I've been at the best of the world at it. And so it was no question in my mind about that, but it just felt like this just was one of those things was just no brainer of like, dude, I don't belong here. I do not belong in this thing. Can't right. say you would have you got you would have got uh, got in you would have you would have done the tournament and, and you obviously would have won. You think Butterbean would have been the guy? You think Butterbean would uh, would have accepted uh, the fight against you instead of uh, uh, Bart Gunn? I don't oh, think no. so. <laughs> I, I don't think, think he would. I don't think he'd been anywhere near you. Yeah, I think. I mean, I got to give Butterbean credit, right? I mean, he's a big puncher and he's got a tough chin. I mean, he won a couple of tough mans. Like I won four tough mans. That's what he's done, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it would have been a hell of a fight. But again, you got to remember, this didn't have any takedowns when Butterbean fought, right? It was straight stand up, yeah, from right. my understanding. 
And yeah. so that literally favors Butterbean because I was more of a submission specialist. I could punch, no doubt, but I wasn't a, I wasn't a true boxer, but Butterbean was. One thing That's what got Layfield because he wasn't a submission guy. That's why I got him knocked out of the tournament. No, Bart, right, Bart, right. Bart, Gunn, Bart Gunn's <laughs> left hand got me knocked out. Is what got yeah, me yeah. Me like, like a damn rock, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, but I trained in. Uh, I, I had a, it was one of the greatest times of my life. I trained in the Lions Den, getting ready for it with Guy Mesger, who's yeah. a Ken's guy. Yeah, I trained yeah. up in Dallas, went up there every day and trained with guy. I love guy. Guy was awesome. At one point, guy told me because the guy would spar with me. He goes, I had a, a bloody nose and a, a black eye <laughs> from guy. And he could tell I'm getting a little bit uh, dejected. And he yeah. goes, you're getting better. I said, how do you know? I, <laughs> I said, how do you know I didn't hit you in three days? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy's a great dude, man. Another world champion. Uh, really strong Lions Den fighters. So he, you train with somebody good, but you, you got to remember that these tough mans are one minute things. Uh, even if you put a pro guy in there, it, it's a difficult, it's a, even though they're, they're most of the time they're going to win, but it's a different thing when you're just doing a brawl for all. It's not professional. Well, you know, Kurt Angle found that out from Daniel Pewter. I mean, uh, Pewter going into business on his own on there. So anything can happen at any time. You know, this guy decided to go into business for himself there. But uh, I got to go back to Layfield. Layfield, that was probably the best bump you ever took in your entire career. <laughs> it looked legit. <laughs> yeah, it did. I'm, hey, I'm a great worker. I'm a great worker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it looked legit. I was. I was really upset. Of, I was really upset about losing uh, until I, I saw how hard Butterbean hit. And then, yeah. hey, <laughs> there, <laughs> hey, Ken, if hey, you remember, you and I watched Butterbean warm up, uh, hit the pads, and I looked at you and I said, "Oh my God, Bart's in trouble." And that was the first time it occurred to me that there, the, the difference between a professional fighter right. and a really tough guy in Bart. But it, me and you were sitting there watching him. He was hitting those pads so hard and so fast. You know, he so a, smooth, so effortless. And he had had like a. He told me afterwards, a hundred something fights by that point. You know, it, yeah. it just it wasn't even close to a fair matchup. No, <laughs> no. That's when you're standing outside and go, well, maybe that wasn't so bad to lose then, because this has got a lot of eyes on it now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'll, I'll, I'll happily be backstage. Yeah. <laughs> right. Kenny, Kenny, one of the great things that, that you got to take solace in, you know, it, it's it's great to, to win all the awards that you won and all the accomplishments that, that you won. But one thing, you know, I was reading through your bio and, and and stuff like that. You 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 become one hell of a trainer and a teacher, you know, and that that's got to bring as much satisfaction as winning a world title when you see one of your students that you've you've worked with from the beginning to go on and gain great success. And it, 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 it means more uh, to be a teacher sometimes than, than the actual competitor. Right. Well, I think it's a journey, right? You think about your efforts to get uh, to a amateur status, then to be a professional fighter, win a championship. Then once you've done that, you know, uh, turn around. And I think this is where you get that greatness uh, in a fighter is to turn around and show other people how to get there. Like you did be able to show them the training aspects, the dedication, the effort, uh, and be able to instill that in them so that they're able to reach those levels. And uh, in the lion's den, I mean, I, I, I produced five world champions. 
Um, at one time, I was a champion um, in the uh, light heavy division. Uh, we had Guy Mez, or actually Jerry Bolander, Guy uh, Frank Shamrock, and Guy Mesker, and then um, Mikey Burnett, who was the number one contender in the in the lightweight division. So we had all three of those categories that were Lions Den, and uh, all those guys were trained by me, uh, and 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 taught them the effort and the the dedication that goes into learning and and the commitment. Uh, that you have to have to be at that level and fight in this kind of fight. And so when I did that and I was able to turn around and have that experience of, of seeing it and, and looking at it after the fact, I truly understood the how much that meant uh, to the legacy uh, of the Lions, Dan, and the effort those guys put in. And then me being able to teach them the same things that I learned over in Japan and be able to apply them to them and then be able to pick them up and become world champions. Not only that, but the life lessons that that, that uh, your father Bob taught you, you know, growing up, I mean, that goes in part of the teaching these guys, the commitment, the passion to have for something. Absolutely, because without, I mean, again, it's a combination of things. Without that combination, you don't reach that 1% level. You just can't because you fall short somewhere with some, one of those things gone. Jim, one thing you talk about, the analytical part, I never heard somebody break down a guard like you broke it down when you're talking about this, the first, the second fight with Hoist Gracie. Right. Because people were scared about getting in the guard and then you realized it was a matter of just controlling the hips. You control the guard and you wanted to be in the guard because that was where you had control. And unfortunately they put that 30 minute time limit. Right. On. You had trained because you, you thought it was so cool when he said, I'm going to destroy the myth. Yeah. The myth that the, the Brazilians were better conditioned and also were uh, better, better. Technically. Conditioned. Right. And again, uh, obviously, they changed the time limit because my idea was to to wear him out. Probably, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes in, I felt like he would be exhausted enough for me to be able to just do what I wanted to do to him. And and of course, they put that time limit in there. But I, it was a, two days before the fight. I couldn't change my strategy. So I just stuck with it. And if you see the way the fight went, Hoist was exhausted after 20, 25 minutes when they did the overtime. Uh, the three minute, the extra three minutes, he was exhausted. And uh, so my, my plan had been working to a T. And I think what most people fail to realize, because the, the Gracies had kept pushing into people's minds, that if you stayed in the guard, that you would get submitted. It was the actual opposite of that. If you tried to escape from the guard, you would get submitted. If you stayed in the guard and controlled the hips and ground and pounded them, and allow them to be the ones that move, turn it, flip the script on them, make them move, then you would be better off than you trying to struggle to get out of the guard and then you'd be susceptible to arm bars and leg chokes and even being turned and ended up on the bottom. And so I broke it down very, very, uh, you know, scientifically when I trained for that fight, I literally said, I'm going to sit in his wheelhouse. I'm going to control his hips and I'm going to beat on him with my head and body shots slamming my head into his head, slamming my fists into his body, putting pressure down on his stomach so he can't breathe, and at the same time controlling his hips. And it was a slow fight, no question. But I felt like being in the guard, making him do the one that has to move, and me not being the one that has to move, he would make the mistakes and I would beat him up. And that's literally what happened. If that fight didn't have a time limit, he'd have been toast because he had nothing left. And you're training for that. You 
you said you had guys come in 30 minutes at a time. You're training two hours. Yeah, I, every every five minutes, I, the guy would switch out. Starting out, we would do these five-minute goes. And, uh, and, you know, we'd have four or five guys in there. And we would go three hours. <clears throat> Just to build up to that 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 impact, you know, that explosiveness, the five minutes. And then as we got closer to the fights, we did 30 minutes. We start going at one guy every 30 minutes. And there weren't too many guys that could go 30 minutes. Uh, at that time, guys were dying out after 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, so I had sometimes had to have another guy jump in so that I could get the full 30 minutes of guys going hard. Um, because I was so conditioned that I could literally go for three hours uh, and not, and not be all that tired. And uh, I had conditioned myself so well that um, if that fight would have been a strenuous fight for three hours, I would have been able to do it. And if you saw how conditioned I was, he was exhausted and I was fresh. I mean, I was prepared for that fight. And I was prepared for the long haul. Your strategy was working perfect. I just watched the fight again uh, last night just, just to see. Your strategy was working perfect. You just ran out of time, which yeah. didn't know the time was going to be at 30 minutes until two days before. Right. So that really hurt because I, I couldn't really change it two days into the, into the fight. I couldn't all of a sudden just change all that effort and work. I just had to use the time I had. Uh, I, I, you know, hindsight is always, you know, a thousand percent. You can always be right. Right. Because you can always say, Hey, there it is. And then I, I should have done, <clears throat> but I look at it and, and think to me it, that, that last three minutes or whatever it was, I should have poured it on more. But I always, in my mindset, I always knew that Hoist Gracie, uh, even though he was tired, would always be able to pull out a submission. If you let, if you make a mistake, he's going to make you capitalize. He's going to capitalize on it. And so I, so in my mind, I constantly kept uh, making sure that I did not make a mistake. And the first uh, UFC that happened, you, you had just fought three days before in Japan. You're fighting in altitude in Denver. You thought, honestly, it was probably going to be a work, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, listen, anytime anybody says no holes barred, especially back in them days, was it uh, 90, 93, something like that? Yeah, it was 93. Uh, no holes barred. Uh, first thing that comes to your mind is like, you know, okay, it's going to be, you know, it's, it's not real. Like, it's it's going to be entertainment. And so when I heard that, I kept saying, no, man, it, and then they were talking about, no, you kick them in the head when they're on the ground. You can punch them on the ground. I'm like, no, this is this is the United States. They 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 don't let this happen, right? This, this doesn't happen, only in movies. So I never believed it was going to happen, right? I was in my mind, I was like, nah, but but I didn't want to not go. I it was interesting, like no holes barred. They were saying I talked to Art Davies, I called him, he said, No, it's for real. So I was in my back of my mind, I was saying, what if, what if, what if? So I couldn't just let it go and go, nah, I'm not going to do it. It's not, it's not real. I always had that thought in my head, but what if, right? I don't want to miss out on this if it is. Uh, Cause I was already the champion over in Japan. And I was like, okay, if this is what they say it is, I don't want to miss this. So I remember I going into this thing and I didn't even train. I just trained because I had a title shot. Uh, actually defending my title against Bouquet uh, before this happened. And I ended up knocking him out with a knee. Three days later, I fly up to Denver, Colorado. Uh, I just fought, just did my training, just fought. I won, I defended my belt. I go in three days before. I figure, okay, let's go find out what this really is. I bring my Japanese trainers, a doctor, uh, some guys to work with. 
I believe Fanaki came with me. Fouquet, who I just knocked out, came with me. I had a doctor that came with me from Japan. So we get to this place and it's just, I mean, I see these guys walking around and I'm like, wow. I mean, like these guys have been at the 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 the, the bar, man. I mean, they've had a lot of beers because their their beer belly's sticking out. And uh, and then I saw a couple guys like Kevin Rozier looked like he could do something. And then I saw Gerard Godot, who was a kickboxer, a Muay Thai fighter. He fought K1 over in Japan. He was legit. I knew he was legit stand-up fighter. And but the rest of them, Hoist Gracie, he walked around in his gi all the time. And I was like, that's funny. Like this guy looked like he had pajamas on all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so and he was small too. I mean, I was a small guy too, because I only weighed 190 pounds. And I think Hoist weighed 180. So we were both the smallest guys, right? But I I literally fought, never saw him fight. So I'm going to this thing, looking at all these things going on. I'll say, Gerard goes, my tough, toughest opponent. I'll take him down. I'll submit him. No problem. And uh, so we're waiting for this to happen. Uh, there's shifts of the card all the time. I keep trying to figure out where I'm fighting at. What, what, what place am I at? Am I, am I first? Am I second? Never knew where you were at. You would see the thing is, okay, I'm fighting third. Boom. Next day they changed it. Then the night before they changed it again. So you never knew where you were fighting. Like you didn't know who you were fighting. And so we get to this press conference and everybody's sitting up there. I think it's the night before or something. And, and uh, now I get to see everybody and I'm looking down and I'm going, this is a joke. <laughs> this is a joke. There's nobody up there except for probably Gerard Godot that I literally knew who he was. Like, okay, I know I've seen him fight. And I was like, I'll just take him down. It'll be over. <clears throat> so I go into this fight literally like, no, and I'm the champion over in Japan. I'm, I'm, I'm made for this tournament. Like, this is, I can take guys down. Like, I can submit them. And uh, so the, the fight goes to happen. Um, I remember going to the ring and uh, Patrick Smith was literally just dogging me and, and he's all dressed in red. And uh, my father's uh, walking the ring with, with the Japanese guys and we're going in and, and, and we're walking through this crowd. Of these, these guys all dressed in red telling how they're going to kill me. And I remember my dad almost got into a fight with them. And my, <laughs> I was just like, hey, it's pop easy. I'm the one fighting. Settle down. <laughs> we get, so we get to the ring and, and uh, I hear this, this promo of his, like, I feel no pain. That's why I'm going to win. I feel no pain. And in my head, I was like, I was thinking, man, you're about to feel a whole lot of pain, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so I shoot him, take him down, hook him in a heel, and I just literally break his leg. And he's screaming. And I remember standing over the top of him as the referee's pulling me back from him. And I go, you felt that, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I go against the guy in pajamas. And I'm literally like, this guy can't. I mean. It's like wa- watching somebody in a karate gi that gets into a horse stance and a guy walks up and punches him in the mouth and knocks him down. Like, y- y- that's how I'm thinking. Like, this is a joke. This guy's, I'm going to crush him. Because uh, I had no idea about who he was, right? I didn't understand anything he was doing. And I go in to take him down. The next thing I know, I got this rope wrapped around my throat. I'm like, I can't grab a hand to pull it off. Like I'm on, I'm on top of him. All of a sudden he's wrapped around the top of me. He's got this rope on my neck. I'm trying to pull it off. I can't pull it off. And I tap and I'm thinking to myself, what just happened? And I was, I mean, it was probably maybe a couple, maybe a second or two, but in my head, I had all that going through my head. Like you dummy. Like I knew I screwed up. Like I took this guy for, for granted and I just paid for it in front of the whole world. 
And from that moment on, I remember telling myself that will never happen again. And uh, it never did. I never got submitted again. I said, that will never happen again in the UFC. I will come back from this and I will, I will, I will beat him. Obviously, uh, you know, they put the time of it in, so that didn't happen. But, but in my head, I said, I would never get submitted again. And I didn't, I never got submitted again after that in the UFC. One of the great things you brought in uh, WWE, not, not just submissions, but was uh, the lines Den. The, the mat, you know, you had some great matches. Yeah. The matches with Vader were awesome. I mean, he was perfectly made opponent for you. I mean, that was a, that was a dream matchup. But then with Owen Hart, and I think you were in a theater at Madison Square Garden. Is that right? Uh, I, yeah. think. I don't remember, but you were in a separate venue than we were with the yeah, yeah. set up the lines. Then you guys and you guys sold it out. What a heck of a match! You later had a match with Blackman with the uh, lines Den with weapons, but right. What a heck of a match working with Owen during that time. Owen, I mean, you know this. Owen was a just a great person, a great personality, great human being, uh, fun to be in the ring with. Uh, uh, his looks on his face, you had to stay in character. But some of the things when he would look at you, like when something went wrong and he'd just give that dumbfounded look on his face, you just almost start breaking up inside because you have to hold it in. You don't want to laugh. Uh, he was just like, say, you know, those unique uh, guys that could get you to laugh, you have fun with them. Um, and uh, you could trust them. And, uh, I, like I said, I enjoyed the matches we had with him really enjoyed uh, working with him. You'd like the dungeon match. I mean, that was tremendous. Yeah. Uh, it, it just a lot of great opportunities I had working with Owen and a lot of different matches. Uh, he was a great wrestler. He had a lot of different tools that he could use. Uh, he, he could wrestle. Uh, and he knew submissions. He knew a little bit of the submissions because I know Stu Hart put me in a bunch of them. So I know that that Owen learned a lot from uh, from uh, from him and his brothers. And I I had I had enjoyable working with him and being able to put matches together with him. Uh, it was a great memory for me. And, and Bret Hart, I didn't realize that Bret had helped train you. I yeah. brought you and Vader. I knew you you and Bret were close, you know, from being yeah. backstage with you. But, but Bret actually brought you and Vader to his house, right, to help train you. Yeah, he brought us together, and and uh, and I I I can't I can't thank uh, the WWF enough for putting me with Vader because <laughs> if I would have been with anybody else, my career would have been over. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody would have worked with me after that. But Vader was so so graceful and uh, so kind. Uh, that he didn't bash me. Uh, he, you know, appreciated the match, but it, it gave me an opportunity to understand what I had to do next. Like I, I had what I had to do to be able to fit in with everybody. Uh, because when I did the match, I mean, I was stuff that I did. I mean, my, my, my stuff wasn't stiff, but I, but like when I broke his nose, when I was through the knee, um, that was something that he had talked to me about. I said, you just got to let him know you're doing it because when reason why that happened was because when I threw the knee, he was bringing his head down because I didn't tell him, Hey, watch the knee. And so when I threw the knee, I was just doing it like I was sparring and I didn't tell him, Hey, watch the knee. So when I went to go do it, he literally went down thinking that I was going to do something else. And then my knee met him. Um, so those are things like that, that I was able to learn uh, in that first match is like, it's just an easy watch the knee. And that way we don't have a collision. 
Um, so, I mean, I learned a lot and I was able to take my career to another level because of what, what, um, you know, a lot of people did for me, uh, during that time, I worked with a lot of people that really helped me, but Vader truly did help me, uh, especially in that first one, because I was so green and I didn't, and I hadn't wrestled it so long that there was a lot of things that I needed to learn. And I think by having that first match, I was able to learn a whole lot without, being bashed for being too stiff. One one time you had a, a baseball bat, you were gonna choke me out. With a baseball <laughs> bat. And, and so, and you told me beforehand, go, I'm not sure I can do this without choking you out. And, and so, don't worry, if I do, I'll wake you up. <laughs> I remember telling, I remember going to you, say, Hey, I want to apologize to you ahead of time, bro. You ever won? Because I don't know how this is going to turn out. <laughs> that that's that's a frightful thought. The world's most dangerous man with with a baseball bat that don't know how to choke you out. I that's mean, what I, I the, said. the thought the thought is terrifying. That's what I said. I went to the office. And I said, "Why does Kip like need a baseball bat?" <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember putting on me. I go, "Oh, I, I may not be conscious for long." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I think I was I. At least for me, I think it was better somebody else had it in their hand, like like a chair. Don't give me a chair. Let somebody hit me with a chair. I, I don't do chairs well unless I'm getting hit. I can take a chair, but don't let me hit somebody with a chair. <laughs> right. When you worked in uh, Japan, you you, were, you worked with the first one was Fujiwara. Carl Gotch, I believe, trained Fujiwara. Did you ever know Carl Gotch? I did. He he used to come in there and, and him and Fujiwara used to sit in the office while we were out there training and stuff. And they would just drink bottles and bottles of wine and uh, or whatever else they drank. Um, and he used to have some fun in there. And But, you know, when you got kind of humbled was when they'd be in there, they would be drinking. And then one time Carl came out and, and lined everybody up and we had a circle. And there was probably, I don't know, 15 of us. And uh, so Carl put a, a deck of cards. It was two decks of cards. And he would flip it over. And he told us, you know, hearts, you do push-ups. Spades, you do squats. This, you do this. Uh, this, you do diamond push-ups. And so all the cards meant something. And each of them were what the card said. If it was an ace, you would do 50. Uh, if it was a joker, you'd do 100. If it was a king, queen, or jack, you would do 10. Um, and if it was a 10, you'd do 10. And anything else was 9, 8, 7, whatever it was, you'd do that number. And you would go through the whole deck. And we went through the – and it was two decks. We ended up getting through the, the first time through, which was the two decks. And it had to be in at least around a 1,000 or so of, of these different things that we had done. And there was probably four of us left. Fanaki was one of them, and I think Suzuki was another, and then – all the Americans, except myself, were gone after the half of the deck. Um, and then there was a few young boys because they're always working. I think it was two different young boys. And, and they probably could have went longer, too. But they dropped off because they didn't want to be beating their, their guys because they would get beat up. <laughs> so a lot of the young boys would just drop out on purpose because they didn't want to outshine anybody. And then uh, when it came right down to it, it was me and Carl Gotch that was left. I mean, I literally went through the whole deck. I think it was almost two times both those decks. Carl Gotch was still there after that. It was me and Carl, and he would have kept going. I mean, he would have kept going. And he was in his six, late 60s or 70s then. 
And he just guy, and he was back there drinking and having fun. He just thought he'd come out and train with us. And I was at that point, that's when you looked at it and you knew this guy, boy, I tell you what, if he was, you know, 20 years, 20 years younger, man, he'd be stretching all of us. I mean, just an amazing individual. Carl, Carl lived right down the road from me, probably about three or four miles down the road. And I knew his next door neighbor. And one day I ran to his neighbor at, at the grocery store. He said, you know, you know, my neighbor, Carl Gotts, don't you? And I said, yeah, I know him very well. He said, can I ask you a personal question? I, I'm thinking, oh, what what Carl do? Threatening <laughs> to kill him. He <laughs> said, what the hell is he doing with all those Japanese, Japanese boys in his garage? <laughs> He said, at nighttime, my wife and I hear some of the strangest noise coming out of there and some of the most blood-curdling screams coming out of that thing. Yeah. I just looked at him. I said, you don't really want to know what he's doing. <laughs> I said, yeah. he's torturing them, but he's physically torturing them. And I, I, I used the analogy that you just uh, went through with the deck of cards. I said, he'll take a deck of cards to these kids. He'll turn, turn them over. Went through the hole. He did. Holy yeah. cow! He said those he, kids are screaming every night. <laughs> he, he he and and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't ask anybody to do anything that he hadn't already done. Right. I took I took him one time. I called him. I said, Carl. I said I was volunteer coach down at high school. I said, Would you come down and and work out with my high school kids? He said, You know I don't. First thing out of his mind, he said, I'll be glad to do it. But he said, But you know I don't put up with any bullshit. He said, I said, Carl, I've warned these guys just to just to do what you tell them to do. He come down there and he had a workout. And I, you know, he worked, he worked the guys. We thought we worked out these guys hard, you know, but okay. they were exhausted. The next day, every one of them come in, Mr. Briscoe, would you bring back Mr. Gotts? We uh, learned so much from him. He was such a good teacher that a lot of people just say, Carl Gotts, and you get turned off by the name. But this was a human being that cared for people. He cared for these young men. He took his time to break them down. He didn't torture anybody. He just put them through a workout that, you know, a 65-year-old man could do, you know. These are teenagers, and they loved him, man. I took him back down there a couple of times, and the kid just loved him, man, just uh, just being around something like that. Yeah, Carl, Carl like I said, when he – he didn't put up with any BS. I mean, like he was one of those kind of guys that was, that was just focused on what was real and anything that wasn't, he wanted to do with you. And, and that rubbed a lot of people wrong, but it built champions. I mean, he knew how to put uh, somebody that had ability and that could be a champion. He would get you there. Uh, but he wasn't going to put up with anybody's BS. If they didn't want to work, then he didn't want anything to do with them. He didn't have time for them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, then speaking of guys like like him, would, did you ever have the opportunity to be around Billy Robinson much and get on the mat with him or anything? I didn't. No. Uh -uh. Uh, Billy, Billy, Billy was in the same mold as, as Carl. I mean, just an outstanding person, but he would push it to your limit. And you appreciated being around guys like that. You know, if you're competitive, you're an athlete. You want somebody like that. And every time you because you step uh, in the ring with uh, with Billy, you know that he was going to push you to your limits there. And you, you always appreciate it. Well, anybody that wants to be a, a champion or has high goals set for themselves, understand that you got to have somebody around you that's going to push you past what you want to do. And uh, so many of these coaches nowadays, they get some of these talented guys and they don't want to piss them off because they're going to afraid they might lose them. Um, you know, but old school, man, it was like, listen, 
you know, I can get you where you want to go, but I'm not going to be playing any BS with you. We're going to do it my way or go find somebody else. Yeah, that's true. Gary, was Carl, I always heard that Carl was the best shooter of his generation. Was that what you would agree with? I agree if you don't put Billy in in, in that same generation. I don't think right. you would, but I think Carl, during that generation, you know, if you you include the Thez, you know, everybody talked about Thez and everything. I have a ton of respect for Thez, but I really don't think in, in a shoot that Thez could have lasted very long with, with Gotch because Gotch had a different mentality. I mean, and, and he's got that Ken Shamrock mentality, or, or Ken Shamrock had that Carl Gotch not, uh Type of mentality where I'll hurt you, you know. I'll I'll, I'll break a bone. I'll hurt you before before I let you beat me. And that's that's a mentality that that you're not born with. It's a mentality that you develop, and uh, yeah. and he developed it just uh, just like uh, Kenny has. And uh, I Kenny Kenny will agree to me. It takes a certain mindset to to want to go in there and hurt somebody and put somebody in the nose, you know, and uh, and not not feel bad about it, you know, and. Uh, but Gotch, uh, yeah, I think Gotch, and I think that's what held Gotch back. Just like it, it kind of held Hodge back because Hodge, right. and Kenny, Kenny hit on it in the very beginning of this podcast, how hard that he worked not to hurt anybody, not to take advantage of anybody. But because once you, one time you do that, and it's like you do it a million times, yeah. everybody in the world hears about it and they get scared of it and they don't want to work with it. They, the promoters don't want to put you in a spot to make money with it. So Kenny hit it right on the now. He worked so hard in the beginning just to show people that he could work, that he could entertain, and he didn't have to hurt you to get over. And I, I, I think that's what hurt Gotch and, and guys like Hodge because they just didn't trust him because of their mindset. And they there wasn't a big platform where they could prove to prove to it that they they worked that type of guys. They wanted to make money. And Sometimes you wondered if Gosh really wanted to make money or, right. or make a name for himself. And I love Carl today because he was a neighbor. But yeah, it, it, was, it was tough. But I think Carl was probably one of the toughest of, of his generation, if not the toughest. Yeah, I think it's difficult uh, when you're hitting back on that subject. When you talk about a guy that comes from a legit uh, organization where he becomes a world champion, like I was a champion in Japan. And I was a champion in the United States and two of the biggest organizations when it comes to shooting and nobody could beat me. I mean, I was the champion. And then to go into pro wrestling and that knowing that you have to go in there in order to be successful, you have to work together. And that the only way you're going to get over is by you getting beat. You have to put yourself in a situation where you can make a comeback. And people have to understand that you're being beat and that you have to make it believable that you're being beat and then being able to make the comeback so that you can get over. And I think guys like Carl Gotch and some of those old school timers had a hard time putting that together of, of understanding it. Maybe some characters or some guys they were friends with, they didn't mind doing it. And then there are other guys they didn't like and they weren't going to do it. In, in, in this industry, whether you like them or you don't like them, you have to go in there and do your job. And your job is to make it as real as possible. Sure. People have always asked me, uh, you know, when they talk about you, Ken, I said, how was Ken to work with? I said, are you kidding me? It was a dream. He knew he could beat everybody up. So, <laughs> and guys like that, you know, most of the tough guys who came in at WWE, at least from my era, from 95 on, 
were a dream to work with. You know, it, it wasn't the tough guys that were had a problem putting people over because they knew they could fight. It was the guys that weren't very tough. My character. You know, Kurt Angle, Kurt Angle probably said it the best to me. I was asking Kurt, you know, because we had Kurt doing some goofy stuff, you know, and uh, Olympic gold medalist. And, and I asked him, I said, Kurt, does any of this stuff bother you? And he said, Briscoe, he said, I'm like you. He said, I have so much confidence in myself and my ability that I know it's a work. He said, I know I can turn around and beat anybody they put in the ring with me. So, no, I don't have trouble doing it because I have confidence in myself, knowing if it's something, if I have to, I can turn around and beat the shit out of them. And that's just the attitude you got to have, right, Kenny? Well, and his legacy, right? His legacy is an Olympic champion. For God's sakes, the guy literally has a, a fractured neck and wins the Olympics, comes and wins the Olympic, trains through all of that adversity, and then gets into pro wrestling. He already knows, we, everybody already knows who Kurt Angle is. He is one bad SOB. He is a bad dude. So to come into pro wrestling, he's never going to lose that. He's coming into pro wrestling doing something else. And that legacy has that he has is never going to go away. The only time it's ever going to go away is if he goes in there and he just does stupid things in the wrestling ring and beats people up or doesn't work with the program and he fails. That's how he hurts his legacy is by not being successful in the WWF. Then he may hurt himself, not with what he's already done, but what he has done from that point on. So to go in there and to be professional about it and to put people over so that you're able to get yourself over is the way that you have to do it. So you become successful. So he was smart enough to understand that he is already successfully. He's already where he needs to be. Now he has to perfect this craft. And this is what I have to do to do that. Ken, when you look back now uh, on your on your uh, MMA career, you were Super Fight champion, you were UFC champion, you had three of the greatest robberies of all time. Hoist Gracie, which really launched uh, UFC, to Dan Severn, to Tito Ortiz, which really made the, the sport, took it to a new level. I know you're always looking about what's next, not what's behind you, but do you ever just look back and go, that was pretty cool? Yeah, you know, you get to do that, especially as you start – um, going through these hall of fames, you know, uh, you, that you, that's when you really get to reflect, like, then you start really thinking, you know, I said it, uh, in, in, in my induction speech about standing in that, that, uh, museum and looking at all those wrestlers and all those names on the wall and all the, the great people that have gone through there. And you start thinking about how you got there. Right. And to me, that's when you start reflecting on the things that you've done, and I got a chance to do that, you know, uh, during this time to really think about the things that I accomplished and, and, and the adversities that I had to go through to get there and the ups and the downs. And to me, it was just uh, it was a great time to reflect. And so, yes, I did. And I think about, you know, I broken my neck when it was supposed to all be over. I think about being 10 years old, living in a car and, and having no no future uh, and, and then thinking about high school and, and, and going through being uh, successful and breaking my neck and going through that and then getting an opportunity to be successful and, and, uh, and achieving, you know, championships, uh, Japan and, and the UFC and thinking about some of the adversities when I was going even through those things, uh, it, it really is a, a great chance to really reflect on that. And, uh, it is. And I think one day, I think, you know, in the next probably five or 10 years, uh, when things really slow down, uh, 
I think that, uh, you know, being able to tell this story, you know, whether it be in a book or, or a documentary, uh, you know, I think then I'll really have time to sit down and put it all together because I think it's, it's something that in my mind, I always think about how can I give back? How can I tell a story that's going to help other people? Yeah. And when the world's biggest movie star uh, right now, his formative years in WWE were with you when yeah. you guys you know, were, were both making it in WWE. You and The Rock had some had an incredible chemistry. You, you got to look at that now and go, man, just give wow. send me some free movie passes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I tell you, that was that was special. It, it was. But you got to think about the time and when I was in there. I mean, I got to wrestle with Shawn Michaels. Uh, I got to wrestle with Bret Hart, you know, I mean, you think about it. I mean, all those guys that I stepped in there with, with all these, especially during that time, there were a lot of superstars and I got to wrestle a lot of these guys and the undertaker, I got to wrestle him. Uh, so yes. A great uh, undertaker. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just, I got to do all of that. And and then to have Rock and doing the program where it was which is the only really storyline I ever really got to do that was we got to finish, like really tell a story. Um, and I got to really jump in and really tell a story and do a program. So I had a lot of people always say, what are your what are your favorite moments? And I just tell them, dude, you just don't realize how special it is when you're standing across the ring to look across at all those different superstars that you're in the ring with and that you get to put matches on with are special moments. But I would always say, yes, the rock, just because we got to work that program, we really got to help develop each other and, and rise up to the occasion and put on some great matches. Well, you lived in a special world, not, you know, and you're in one life, you, you, you're, you're standing across from Hall of Famers like Gracie Severns and guys like that. And then the next life, you're standing across from Undertakers, the Shawn Michaels, the Bret Hart's, the greatest. So you've hit the greatest in both sports world. There's very few men in, in, in on, on the face of the earth that's had the opportunity that you had. But you had that opportunity, Ken, and you not only had the opportunity – but you seized the moment and, and became a star in both organizations and nobody can accomplish what you get. And it's so great of you taking your time today and, and, and being with us, man. Uh, John and I have been really excited when I told John I was going to be with you in, in Iowa. He said, man, let's get him for the show. And I, man, I, I was so thrilled when you said yes. And I, and I shared the story uh, with John, you know, and, then John come back and said, well, he told me to grab my best hold, and I showed him. You said, John, he started laughing when he saw that story. It brought back memories. So that's what it does. It just brings back memories. And, man, we appreciate so much your time today, Kenny, being on our show. Yeah, I appreciate it. Hey, you know, John, when I said grab his best hold, he already had double underhooks on me. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I was a little late. He already had the underhooks. <laughs> Watch you got to go quick and get a chair box, man. <laughs> you got to watch it. <laughs> yeah. When you went back to fighting, I, I flew across the country just to watch you fight. I was, you know, because I, I thought so much of you. And I still do to this day. I, I just always talk about what a stand-up individual you, you are and uh, were back then and how much it was a fun it was to be around you back in the WWE days, WWF days back then, and to watch you progress – do you have anything that you want to push uh, for the for the podcast audience or anything? I don't want to leave before you have a chance to plug something. 
Yeah, I got my website, kenshamrock.com. Uh, it has all my social media platforms on there. Come check us out. We got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. Uh, we got some podcasts that we're doing, but also we have a big thing coming up. Uh, it's Valor Bare Knuckle. Uh, I'm doing my promotion. Uh, we've got some things probably in the next three to five months. We're going to make an announcement about where we're fighting at. Uh, so uh, stay tuned for that. You can find all that out on uh, the kinshamrock.com uh, and look forward to seeing all of you guys, man. And again, I want to, I want to go back to, you know, the WWF and the UFC and, and, and Japan and all the things that I've done, you know, uh, I've said this a lot of times and I'll keep saying it. If it wasn't for the fans, I wouldn't be where I'm at. I have truly loved having the fans. And when they weren't in the audience, when I was able to do certain things with different organizations, it just wasn't the same to me. I feed off the fans. I love the fans and I appreciate the fans. And like I said, without them, I would not have the career I had. So thank you to all of you, whether you hated me or whether you love me. Thank you. <laughs> Ken, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it, man. Thank you.